Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm not Pastor Sam. He's away. Um, but my beard apparently has grown sufficiently long enough that I can uh, take over the reins while he's away and preach today. Or as Kaylee said to me this morning, are you doing the, the talking thingy? So I am doing the talking thingy today. Uh, my name is Paco. I'm sure I have a first name and I'm sure I have no idea what it is. Um, you can call me Parker. Um, uh, it's a blessing to have the privilege of speaking, not so much because, well, I do like talking, but um, one of the benefits of preparing a message is the blessing that you get of spending a lot of time studying God's Word in a way that you wouldn't normally during a, a normal week. Um, so thank you for the privilege of that. And uh, I hope that you all get something out of this. Um, in my own defence, I'm not a full-time pastor, therefore I'll read a lot of the Bible. So as a bare minimum, you'll hear from God's Word. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Flooding Creek Community Church. Lord, thank you for the people who are able to attend here. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are not and for those who are watching on Zoom. Uh, being winter, Lord, there is a lot of sickness going around. Lord, I pray that you'd be with everyone, Lord. I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and you would reach the hearts and minds of everyone here. Holy Spirit, speak to us and guide us. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Excellent. So we are in the book of Judges today. Um, in the redemption narrative from creation, Garden of Eden, the fall, Noah, the formation of Israel, the exile, the wilderness... The promised land of Judges is where we sit, and then it follows on with the reign of kings, then the splitting up of Israel, the awaiting of the Redeemer, Christ comes, lives, dies, is resurrected, the early church, and the second coming. So we're sitting in the story of Judges, just prior to the king. Now, there's 17 Judges. Uh, last week, we heard of the first, Othniel. Um, Othniel is considered sort of the the standard model, because you'll notice in these stories, they follow a fairly similar pattern, not in the way they're written, but just the way the story goes. It's the same story over and over again. So in Othniel, whose name means God is Force, which is a really cool name, I'd love to be called God is Force, uh, the people sin, they turn to idol worship. And idol worship is basically what all sin is. All sin is diverting away from what should be given to God to something else. Now, they worship the Baals and the Asheroths, but we don't have to have an evil symbol to do idol worship. God then punished the people by raising up an evil king. This wasn't wrath from God from heaven. This was raising up an evil person to come in and physically punish the people. And so the people suffered punishment. The next step is the people cried out to God, the God who was punishing them for their own sin. They were praying to him for deliverance. And God would raise a deliverer. And in these stories, the deliverer he raises is a judge. Not a court judge, as we heard last week, but someone who would uh, have some level of power or influence over the nation. It would, say, it would say in there that this person judged Israel. Once again, last week was mentioned as well, for those who weren't here, they didn't judge the entire nation. They just typically judged an area where they lived. 
There's no mobile phones or internet, so they had only influence in where they were, and sometimes they were just a part of a tribe or just a part of an area. Now, with Othniel, one of the greatest lines for him was, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he went out to war, and they had 40 years of rest, and then he died. So we have 16 more judges to go. Some get big stories like Samson. Some get small stories. Um, and eventually it ends up with the judge prophet Samuel, who anoints the following kings of Israel. And so today's judge is Ehud. Now his name means strong or united. Um, and I don't know about these names, whether these names were what they, uh, they were named because of that or because of what they did, they were known. So I don't know whether they named Ehud meaning strong or Ehud existed and because of what he did, his name was synonymous with being strong and united. But we'll uh, start reading today. So if you go up to the next slide, Carl. So just to orientate yourself with where we are, we're really focusing on this tiny little area just to the north of the Dead Sea, near the old city of Jericho and Gilgal, near the tribe of Benjamin to the west. And this area here is where the Moabites are sort of uh, of use in this story. So um, a very small part of the area are we looking at so i'm not going to read the whole thing i'm going to read some of it and then stop and talk about uh what's going on um so i'd love you to follow with me so this is judges 3 we're going to be reading verses 12 all the way through to verse 30 and the people of israel again did what was evil in the sight of the lord and the lord strengthened eglon the king of moab against israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So the first thing you need to look at is, once again, the people of Israel did evil, but the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Why? Because of what they had done was evil. But the Lord didn't send a prophet to tell them their sin. He raised up an evil enemy to come and punish the people. It reminds me of the, the prophecy in Habakkuk 1.5. Um, the verse says, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, if you look up that verse on the internet, you'll see that verse emblazoned across pictures of sunshine and people standing over, looking over the hills. It's, it's, it's under inspirational verses. This is taken by many as an inspirational verse. But it's not. It's quite contrary, actually. Because the next verse uh, explains what 1 Habakkuk 5 is all about. Because 1 Habakkuk 6 says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So once again, God was raising up an evil people to come and punish the people of Israel for their sin. Why were these evil people even here? So we learned last week that these people were not supposed to be there. They were supposed to be driven out. And God even said in Exodus 34, 11, that 
Observe what I command to you this day. Behold, I will drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They were not supposed to be there. But because of Israel's sin, they were allowed to remain. And God used them to punish them for their own sin. Now, there was two groups that uh, King Eglon gathered together. So he was, he was Moab, so he was the Moabites, and he gathered the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Now, the Ammonites are from the... Uh, where we get the word Canaanites, they're from Canaan. Now, Canaan was the evil son, uh, so the, the son of Ham, who was the evil son of Noah. So we go all the way back to Noah to get where the line of these evil people came from. The story of Noah, this is the story of Noah who uh, saves his family in the ark when God wipes out the rest of humanity because of its evil lands, the animals come out, his family comes out. He provides some sacrifices, which is one of my favourite verses in the Bible because that's the first time we have people eating meat and I love eating meat, so I'm very, very thankful for Noah. He then does what he did, which was he planted a vineyard and then he seemed to have done what some people do when they plant vineyards, is he made some wine and then he gets drunk and passes out naked. Now, was this Noah's greatest moment? No. But the Bible's not very good at hiding people's worst moments. If anything, it almost seems to amplify them. So anyhow, Noah's lying naked in his bed, passed out drunk, and his son Ham walks in and sees him. And it doesn't specifically say it in Genesis, but there's a hint that he was either mocking or laughing at what his father had done. There wasn't any respect. And he goes to his two brothers, um, and his two brothers hear about it. And his two brothers, being the respectful ones, they walk in backwards with a blanket and then cover their father so they never see his nakedness. They never see his shame. And when Noah wakes up, he curses his son, Ham. And this is what he says. He's cursed be Canaan. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses his son, Canaan. As servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Noah wasn't just cursing his son for what he did. He was cursing his son's entire family for what he did. The one evil father, Ham, led to a nation of wicked people. And here they are today, still at the side of the Israelites. And then there was the Amalekites, um, the, the generation of Amalek, the grandson, grandson of Esau. Um, once again, another bad son. We read about Esau at the end of Hebrews there, um, was an evil man, and he had an evil generation. So I'll put up here a picture of the city of Jericho. It doesn't really show much. It just looks like a big mud pile. Um, it's not very large, but the city of Jericho is the city of Palms. As far as everyone can uh, piece together, that the story happens around the city of Palms. Eglon comes in, takes over the area, takes over Jericho and sets up shop there, whether he, he sits in a palace or whether he has just a place that he works and he lives in Moab in his original palace. We don't really know. Um, but there's some interesting excavations there looking at the city of Jericho and what still sits there. So this is the same city that 100 years prior had fallen when Joshua had come into the land and in some senses it had been rebuilt. And here's where we find the king sitting and ruling over Israel as a conquering king for 18 years. And then we go to verse 15 now. Then the people of Israel cried out, as they did, to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent a tribute to him 
to him, sorry, a tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. So, we now have a couple of interesting things that are put, put in the Bible here that are worth looking at. The people cried out, as they would in the stories of Judges, and God raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, Benjamin, a left-handed man. Now, to all the left-handed people out there, like, hooray, we've finally got a character in the Bible we can identify with, and he's not a terrible person, as far as I can tell. Uh, there's no mention of sin or flaw in his life. But he may not actually be left-handed. The word that the Hebrew puts basically says, a man restricted right hand. Now, this could be many things. Um, later on, when we, we look at another story in Judges, you'll find 700 men, also from the tribe of Benjamin, who were, once again, right hand restricted. They were people who used slings, and apparently they were very accurate. Um, it could be that simply the tribe of Benjamin had a lot of left-handed people. So by saying he was a left-handed man, that he was of that tribe. It could be that he had a disability in his right hand. But that doesn't really seem to make any sense in that he was chosen to deliver a tribute to the king. And if you're going to send a messenger to a king, you would not in this historical period of time send a disabled person or a person with an abnormality. Um, the king would not want to be around somebody like that. You would want to send a good-looking person, a strong person, a healthy person. Um, there's also the idea that the Benjaminites actually trained their warriors to fight left-handed. You know, it reminds me of the, um, in the movie Rocky, the original Rocky movie, where Apollo Creed's fighter drops out and they're looking for someone to fight against the champion. And they look at the Italian stallion, Rocky Balboa, and Apollo Creed, he just loves the name. He just wants the publicity. One of his managers is with him. He's like, Rocky's a southpaw. You don't want to do that. By southpaw, they mean instead of having a left hand to jab and power with his right, he has a jab with his right and his left hand, the south hand, is where his power comes from. Fighting a left-handed person when you're right-handed is complicated and difficult. And maybe they just trained the Benjaminites to fight left-handed as a tactical advantage. Or we can simply go back to the fact that he was possibly left-handed. We just don't know, but it's worth mentioning, and you'll see why it's worth mentioning later on in the story. And this is not the only time we hear about left-handed people. We heard about Joab murdering Abner before. Uh, there's another story in 2 Samuel 28 to 12 where Joab does the very same thing that Ehud does and he uses a sword to murder another man. But the point is simply this. He made a sword for himself, two cubits in length. Now, they say that's about 45 centimetres. So it's basically, that's 45 inches. I don't want to show you that. That's a little bit too large. So 45 centimetres is about that long. Enough to sort of stick a long way through a person. It's not a short, it's not a large sword. It's, it's an assassin's tool. It wouldn't be very good for combat because of its short length. But it was designed to be long enough to be deadly, but small enough to be hidden. And you'll see why he made this sword like this. Then we have 
verse 17. I'll read it again. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, this is the English translation. In other words, bori, which means fat. Um, but the Bible typically doesn't use fat in the way we would understand it. Because you've got to remember that uh, in this sort of uh, time, there was not easy access to coke and refined sugar and excess carbs and wheat and grain. A lot of people in this time were simply just struggling to have enough food to survive. So it could simply mean that Eglon, because he was the, re the reigning king, he had enough food. He was actually healthy. And this very same word is used in Daniel when Daniel chooses not to take the choice food off the king's table, but eats pulse or vegetables. And they say that the appearance of Daniel was that he was fat. Now, the idea of this story in Daniel was not that Daniel was overweight, but just simply he looked healthy. It could also be because these stories are written after the event. This wasn't someone scribing along at the way. This is a story that happened after. That the word fat is used a lot in terms of sacrifice. When there were sacrifices, you would burn the fat. It could be a, an allusion to the fact that this king is going to become a sacrifice to God for the people of Israel. One of the joys of studying is I found that uh, in Spanish, the word they use to describe him is hombre muy grueso. He was a very thick man. This hombre was a very thick man. Ironically, his name, once again, we don't know whether he was named like this or whether he become, his name come to mean this, was his name Eglong means cow or calf-like. So there's a lot of allegory into this name. So we, we sort of sit there and go, what is it? Is, is it really a pun on his name that he was fat because he was about to be slaughtered? Was it simply that he was just healthy or was he a larger man? Was it, was it a, a, a symbol of the evil of what God would bring in to shame the Israelite people? This person was a glutton, that the people would starve and he would bring a lot of things to himself. And it doesn't really fully answer exactly what is the case, but most people take it to mean that he was a larger man. Because of what happens next makes a little bit of sense. There's a reason I brought out the size of that sword. We're going to talk about what happened with that small sword right now. In verse 18, it says, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. Ehud assassinates King Eglon. So this is a really bad storytelling, like a movie where people just teleport around and it just doesn't make much sense. So to, to sum it up, Ehud takes the tribute that the people of Israel were giving to the invading king so that he would leave them alone and leave them happy. And he brings it to them, gives it to the king, most likely in Jericho, the city of Palms. And then he leaves. And he gets about two or three kilometers out to, the, the, to Gilgal. And Gilgal's where, when the Israels initially came into Israel, they crossed the Jordan and they arrived at Gilgal and they set up an altar there. Um, so he gets to this place, then he sends his people away and he goes back to the king. I don't know if the king 
came with him to Gilgal and he said to the king, I have a message for you, or he went there to make it look like he was going through the motions of giving the tribute and then comes back. Either way, he goes and teleports very quickly from Gilgal back into the palace with the king and says, I have a message for you. So he's now back in the palace or the building where Eglon was and he says, I have a message for you. And... Egon says, cool, and sends his servants away. He says, silence, and his attendants leave. So this is a, a fairly common thing for a person giving a tribute that they would want to give essentially a secret message to the king. Or given that what people knew about the people of Israel, this might be some kind of blessing. This might be some kind of wisdom or message from God. And Ehud actually says to him, he says, I have a message from God from you. And he rises from him seat. So he was sitting down. Ehud says, I have a message from God from you. And he stands up waiting to get this message. And what was the message from God that Ehud had? It was a sword to the belly. And then we read in verse 22. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull out the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Okay. Uh, once again, more wonderful, colourful language in this story. When it says the fat closed in, it's, it's a different word. It's ha-heleb, or like ha is the, heleb is fat. So it's the fat. So when they talk about the fat, this use is almost exclusively used in the Bible talking about sacrificial fat, the fat closed around. Either way, whether it's symbolic or not, the sword has gone into the king and Ehud has jammed this thing in with such force that he's let go and the handle has disappeared and followed into the body of Eglon. And then it says, and then the dung came out. Now this is a, a hapax. This is a word in the Bible that has no other word to compare for. So we're very lucky in the New Testament. If we see a word that's rare or a word that Paul uses that's weird, you look and go, well, where else does the author Paul use this word? And you can compare the two words and say, well, okay, in this context it means this. That might help us how to translate what it means in that context. Or you, with Greek, you can look at other writings of other Greek writers and, well, how do they use those words? Is this a colloquialism? Is this a joke? You know, when, when Jesus said it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle and to enter heaven, was that, a, was that just a joke or was there a gate called the eye of the needle and camels had to get down on their knees to get through? You can research these things. However, this is the Hebrew Bible. This is the, this is the book of the nation of Israel. There is not a lot to compare to. So we really don't know what this word means. And the dung came out. Or some translations say the dirt. Others say the entrails. Uh, there was a suggestion that maybe we do a, a reenactment of the king being stabbed and the, get some sausages and they can fall out onto the floor. And I thought, oh, it's a little bit too much. But you get the picture. Uh, there's, there's one either translation that essentially says, or one way of looking at the words that make it up, it says, uh, it came out the hole, which is, I think, where we get dirt or dung for, or literally that the sword came out the hole that the dung normally comes out of. Either way... It's just a very gross picture of a very horrific murder of this king. It could even just simply mean that Ehud stabbed the king and then he left fire a hole in this room. So as this poor king lays dead or dying, Ehud then makes his escape. If we go to 23 to 26, you can go to the next slide, Carl. 
I don't have too many, I've just got. So we've started off, we've gone to Jericho, we've delivered the, tri the tribute, we've gone to Gilgal. Ehud sent his people away, he's gone back in secret to the king on his own, he's executed the king, and he now makes his escape in a almost comical type fashion. So then Ehud, in verse 23, then Ehud went out to the porch. Once again, a word we have no idea what it means. We just use porch because that's kind of what it may have meant. He went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. How did he lock them? Don't know. Did he have a key? Makes no sense. Did he have a key? Was it a tumbler lock, which was a thing? Was he able to simply lock it? Did he make sure to reach around and lock it? I don't know. Either way, he shut the doors and locked them and went out. And when he had gone... The servants came and they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked. They thought, surely he, Eglon, is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. So he went past the idols at Gilgal and then makes a left turn to go way up to the northwest into Ephraim, which is where the Benjaminites, where the Benjaminites lived in Sierra. So the, the word says, surely he's relieving himself in the closet. Um, interesting note that the term used here isn't that. The term they used is he's covering his feet, which... Is, is sort of a, an elegant way of sort of if, if we're current day maybe saying you're, you're off to the bathroom or a little bit crass, maybe doing a number one or a number two. It's, they didn't directly say what he's saying. They were using a colloquial term. He was covering his feet. Were, he was in the private time in the bathroom. And I just, when I read this, I just can't um, escape the fact that this is just such a, uh, a real story. Like I, I loved a saying attributed to um, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he was talking to uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia. And he was saying that one of the things that, about the Bible that makes so much sense to him as it being authentic is it's just not written how you would create a fabrication. There's too many things in the Bible that just don't make sense or don't line up or you would just not do if you were going to create a work of fiction. It just reads as raw as it looks. We've got this horrible story of this poor king being slaughtered and then he's locked in the toilet and the people could maybe have even gone in and, and attended to him but they're worried and maybe there was a smell and that's why they waited embarrassingly long. And all of this was simply so Ehud could leg it Forrest Gump style out and get away before they were able to uh, rally the soldiers and capture this man. So we'll continue to the last section of the story, which is the resolution. So verses 27 to 30. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, and the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So they hold 
the ford. So they go up into the hills. He calls all of the soldiers. I don't know whether they were ready. I don't know whether he'd let anyone know this plan. I don't know whether it took a day, an hour, or 10 weeks, or a year for this to happen. But he rolls down from the hills with the Israelites. They take over the city of Palms again, and they roll through to the east to the River Jordan and take the ford of Jordan. Now, tactically, that sound, might sound like a good thing, but if you've ever seen what the River Jordan looks like in that area... Um, you could probably run and jump over it at some places. It's a, a little puddle. It's not this mega river. So it's not like holding some great bridge to hit the Germans out of France. It's just simply a spot, but it was probably a trade route. It was probably a road. And in these times, roads were safe and roads were fast. So it was very easy for them to keep Moab, who, remember, come from this area down here. They invaded into Jericho. They take the river and they hold the Moabites out and they have peace for 80 years. So, I've got three points and one question. Uh, the first question of this is, was what Ehud did ethically right? Was it correct what he did? Or does it line up with what Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion said about the God of the Old Testament? He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. I got all the words in there. Is he right? Was it wrong for Ehud to just go up and assassinate this person? Or was it right for God to raise a person to go up and kill another man? Now, what do we do with the Old Testament? The Old Testament is full of this, full of... Godly kings who have multiple wives and concubines and people who do bizarre things. But these are the leaders, the prophets. Now, one of the, the things that some people do is they simply just reject the Old Testament. You know, there's a, there's a thing called a red-letter Bible. And the idea is that the only part of the Bible that you can actually trust is the words that Jesus himself spoke. As if Jesus didn't speak the other parts of the Bible, only the quotes of Jesus. People who say the God of the Old Testament is different or he's changed. I reject that evil old God. Or re reinterpret it. We do gymnastics with the words to make the Bible not as harsh. We get colourful. Or do we simply just allow, which I think is the correct thing, is it's God's right to be who God is. And that we are to just simply look and learn and understand what is going on. And so the first thing you need to ask yourself is, who here doesn't deserve judgment? Did Eglon deserve judgment? Do you think he killed a lot of people coming into Israel to invade? Do you think he was not oppressing those people? Do you think he wasn't a sinner? We all deserve judgment. And, and the reality is if God was not to withhold his judgment, we would all be gone. It is only by the grace of God that we actually exist and that we experience joy and love and some of the things that God allows us through his own long-suffering to experience. But because of that, we get a twisted view of justice as if there's good and bad and we should adjudicate it. We have laws. But the reality is that the penalty of sin is death, and when sinners die, God is good. A good example of how we get twisted justification up is best exemplified in vengeance movies. Like, I just started recently watching one of my favourite movies called The Equaliser, starring one of the few actual almost Christians in Hollywood, Denzel Washington. A movie about a man who works at Bunnings, but he's a secretly a highly trained guy. But uh, he meets this girl and she's bought into slavery and she's doing what slave girls do in a lot of these um, 
criminal organisations, and she ends up getting beaten up. He then goes out and massacres 22 people. A girl was born into slavery. She had a horrible life and she was beaten up. And now 22 people are dead because of that. And we cheer. Yay! Well, let's go even further. Let's take a man with a particular set of skills, Liam Neeson's character in Taken. They steal his daughter. He murders 31 men to get his daughter back. She hadn't even died. I'm not saying it was great for her. I'm not saying it was fun for her. But what is the balance of getting your daughter back and murder? Like, how many people would you murder to get your daughter back and still think it's righteous? Or the greatest of current vengeance movies, John Wick. Um, there's a great YouTube channel called Honest Trailers where they do a fake trailer of a movie. And instead of presenting it as trying to advertise it, they just present the irony of it or the things that don't make sense. Or, you know, they point out how in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, how when they hopped on the boat, there was no spare seats. So the evil Willy Wonka knew that Augustus Gloop was going to fall in because he didn't have any seats for them. Well, on the start of the, uh, the Honest Trailer for John Wick, they start up with this line. They stole his car, they killed his dog, and now he's going to kill 76 people who work for the dad of the kid who did it to him. He actually kills 76 people. 70, sorry, 77 people. He actually kills the dad. Why? Because they killed his puppy and stole his car. But he gets his car back anyway. He murders nearly 100 people... Because they killed a puppy dog. Now, I love puppies, but that's a very unbalanced thing. But when we watch that, who was disgusted by the morals of John Wick? Who here got the end of it? This is a horrible movie. That guy is an evil psychopath mass murderer. No, you cheer because you feel like good is one. Because our view of judgment is broken. Now, I don't say that to say you're all stupid. I'm just saying when we look at the Bible, you need to understand the eternal design of the world that God has created. We can sometimes feel like we're judging God for the evil that he has done. But we need to look at things clearly through God's eyes. Now, not all murder in the Bible is sanctioned. That's why we read that bizarre story of Joab earlier in the day uh, in 2 Samuel 2, 26 to 30, where he murders Abner. Now, when Abner is murdered, David curses Joab and says, I want your family to always have someone sick, always bleeding or leprous or starving, because then David's like, I want nothing to do with that. So not every time a person of God or a person in the Bible kills someone, is it good? And we've got Ehud himself, he planned this. He made a sword. He strapped it to his thigh to hide it because swords would typically be on the left-hand side where a right-hand person would draw it. So even if the guards searched him, they may not see it. He deceived the king. He went, he gave the tribute. He did all of the normal things when all the guards would be nervous. He then goes away and the guards relax because it all went well. He then turns around and goes, hey, i got a secret message for you. That piqued the interest of the king. He wanted a word from God. He said, I have a word from Elohim, not Yahweh, Elohim. A word from God, my God. He then uses that. The king's about to hear this great message from God. He stands up. He draws out the sword and stabs him. Then he bails. Then the Israelites come down. And then how many how did they kill? 10,000 of the Moabites. 10,000 of the people who worked for the king who was sitting on the throne. And this is a good thing. The people of Israel are liberated. But death is not a good thing. And we're in this whole mess because the people of Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do and they sinned and followed idols. 
But the story of Judges doesn't sit at the end of the redemption arc of the story of humankind. It sits on the way towards the story of kings and it leads towards Jesus. Now that is why we now don't get called to go out and murder evil kings. Because the, the arrival, the birth, life and death, resurrection of Jesus changes the dynamic of the way God interacts with his people. And it's not just around raising up leaders. We no longer have a nation of Israel. We have a nation of believers. We no longer have priests. We have a priesthood of believers. And we have Jesus Christ who died and suffered as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, he took away God's vengeance against his people for another day. See, God will still execute his will, and he still did. There's still two stories in Acts where God executes his will. Ananias and Sapphira lie about the, the tribute they were giving and they are struck dead in the middle of church. It's a warning to anyone preaching or speaking. If you do the wrong thing, you might just drop dead. Herod gives a speech where the, the people are like, they say something like, oh, like, these are the words of a God. And because Herod doesn't acknowledge God, he dies and the worms eat him. I don't know if the worms ate him or he had worms. I don't know. The story is he died and the worms ate him. But Romans 12.19 is very, very clear. It says, from the word of the Lord, vengeance is mine, I will repay. See, in the Old Testament, there's a whole heap of laws of balance. If someone struck out your eye, you would strike out those. If they stole from you, you would repay. But in the New Testament, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He is delaying the penalty for the evil. And it will come in Revelations 14.19. It says, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So this is the end times. This is all the masses uh, forming against God. And a sickle is thrown by the angel and they're all gathered. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 300 kilometres. So, this is either an allegory for making wine in the middle of all this death and destruction. God just has an awesome winemaking session where all this wine flows around. Or this is just representative of what awaits those who reject God and who will fight against him. And then there is a Jesus who does repay. A Jesus who is a better Ehud, a better judge, a better king. And he will return in Revelations 19 verses 11 to 16 it says and then i saw heaven open this is this is john in his vision of the end times in the island of patmos then i saw heaven open behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Ehud had a sword on his thigh. Jesus has a big tattoo saying, King of kings, Lord of lords. So is it ethical? For that time, he was raised by God to do God's work. And sometimes God's work is messy. 
but we do not live in that time anymore. We have a deliverer of Jesus and we're required when evil reigns to suffer as Jesus suffered. Go to the next slide, Carl. So there's three things I want you to take away from this story of Judges. The first one is that God loves his people through trials. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And not only us, but Jesus himself suffered. Jesus knows pain and anguish. Jesus had terrible friends. He had disciples that abandoned him, that rebuked him. He was homeless. He was hungry. He was pursued. He was tired. He was eventually captured by trumped up charges and executed by crowds shouting, crucify him. Now, we would all love to go back and think, if I was there, I would be the one who would defend Jesus. But there's a good chance we would be in the crowd shouting, crucify him. He was such an affront to them. And that's why we read in Hebrews uh, about suffering. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet was without sin. You see, God tests those he loves. The story before about a father who doesn't discipline his children is actually hate. Disciplining your children is loving. If God was to just let us go, that would not be loving. We need to be disciplined. We need God to take charge. The second point, if you go to the next slide. This is the same as the story of the people of Israel. They sinned and God sent them trials. And the second thing is God loves people by sending a rescuer. Now we have two types of rescuers. We don't have a left-handed man with a sword, but we have Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate rescuer. We also have rescuers in our own lives. Wives, husbands, parents, people who bring you to church, your children, the church itself, people around you. There are rescuers everywhere. And if we look at the trials in our own lives we can see times where God has sent a rescuer. Whether it's by some supernatural act or simply a person. Therefore, we can go out and be the rescuer ourselves. It doesn't have to be massive. It could be giving someone a meal or mowing someone's lawn, sponsoring a child, asking someone how they are, being a friend, praying for someone, sharing the gospel, loving a stranger, rescuing a person. God will send a rescuer. Either a rescuer to our present trial or eventually at our own death we'll be rescued by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the third point, as with the people of Israel, God loves his people by giving them rest. Ehud killed a king, slaughtered 10,000 people and they had 80 years of rest. Sometimes we'll get rest in this life. Some of the trials we're going through now will end. But some may not. But in the end, our suffering will come to an end. There will be a relief. And one of the things that we know from this story, and we know from the story of Judges, is that the suffering of the people of Israel was not unknown to God. The people suffered and he heard their cries. Even if that suffering was brought by Jesus himself. So this is what we're to take away from this story, that we are a part of this story. And this is the greatest story that has ever been told, and God is in control. That no matter what comes our way, 
We are to learn the lessons of the past, to flee idols, to cry out to the Lord and trust that he will deliver, because he does deliver. In the end, no matter what ups or downs there are in life, nothing compares to the reward that awaits those who trust in the Lord. Let's just pray. God, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Lord, that you are worth our waiting. Lord, how sinful we are when we're impatient. Lord, we are short-sighted and we get frustrated that you are not a limitless genie dispensing out all of our wishes. But we know the truth that if you were to give us the desires of our heart, our evil, wicked, sinful hearts, what a wretched life that would be. It is in your grace and love that you withhold from us and you discipline us. You don't give us what we want, but you provide for us what we need. Life is only good when we pursue what is right rather than what makes us feel good. But if we do pursue what is right, we shall receive what is good. Lord, forgive us of our arrogance and relieve us of the burden of worrying about the future. For you know what lies ahead and your burden is light. And it is of no benefit for us to worry about what tomorrow brings. Lord, help us to put all our trust in you with all of our heart and lead not unto our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and you'll make straight our paths. Amen. Now, normally there would be a thing earlier in the day saying if you have any questions, send them through. If you do have any questions, send them through and Pastor Samuel will answer them. Uh, that way I don't go rogue and set something up. Um, and if you need the number, come and see us.